Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Before we start today's show, we just want to take a moment to say that this is our 10th episode and we want to thank all of our listeners who have been with us and followed us on this journey. For those of you who have been with us since the beginning, you know that in episode one, Dr. Lenore came out and told us that he was suffering with prostate cancer. Well, today we thought it was very important for us to follow up on what his journey has been like as he's been documenting it since the beginning. He'll be joined today by Dr. Mac Roach III, a professor at the Department of Radiation Oncology and Urology at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as urologist and expert Dawad O. Langford. Dr. Lenore will be giving us an unfiltered look at what his experience has been like since his diagnosis what treatment has been like, and how it has affected him personally, while giving us insight on how doctors handle these types of issues. Let's go to that now. September is Prostate Cancer Month, but it means a lot more to me this year than in the past because I've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. To take some of the suspense out of it, I've been diagnosed with an intermediate-grade prostate cancer, and I've been treated and my prognosis is good. But when I got that diagnosis, I set out on a journey to learn as much as I could about the disease. I've always known that African-American men get more prostate cancer and die more often. It has been said that if you live long enough as an African-American man, you're likely to get prostate cancer or have to deal with this issue. So I hope that the discussions that I've had and the information I've learned will help you better monitor your prostate and help to make better decisions should that diagnose crop up in your life or someone in your family. As a doctor, when we get a health care problem, we always go to the most experienced, expert person that we know. And it just so happens that in the Bay Area, I have a friend named Dr. Mac Roach, who is the professor of radiation oncology at the University of California, San Francisco, and a world expert in the diagnosis and management of prostate cancer especially in African-American men. We usually talk about wine, but this time I ask you, why is prostate cancer such a problem for African-American men? Cancers are constantly developing in people, but your immune system is going around getting rid of the cancer. So it's believed that, that the immune system is going around your body, checking on your body to try to kill cancers as time goes on. If your immune system is compromised by stress, which could include things like racism, unemployment, bad diet, bad lifestyle, these other factors. So I think there are other factors that may be playing a role, but there are other hypotheses. For example, um, when you consume carcinogens, carcinogens are things that promote cancer development. So, for example, uh, black people have a preference to having meat well done. So anytime you char something, you char your barbecue or you, or you cook your toast, 
things get burnt, those burnt things create heterocyclic compounds or different kinds of chemicals that are associated with burning, they may be somewhat carcinogenic. So we don't know exactly why African-American men have a higher incidence of prostate cancer, but uh, there's work being done to try to figure that out. Prostate cancer is not inherently more aggressive than African-American men. You know, the gold standard in the diagnosis of prostate cancer is the prostate-specific antigen, a PSA. There's a lot of controversy about the PSA and a lot of misunderstanding. Does a high PSA always mean that you have prostate cancer? Well, no, not really. It predominantly comes from the prostate. So if you have infection, it can be elevated. If you have a big prostate, it can be elevated. It doesn't mean that you have cancer if you have an elevated PSA. Now, the normal PSA is generally said to be less than 4. But if you look at patients with PSAs between 4 and 10, if you biopsy them, only about 25% of them have cancer. You know, several years ago, I had a PSA of 4, and I decided not to do anything. Many of my friends had a similar PSA and got biopsy after biopsy until it was decided they either did or did not have prostate cancer. Now my PSA is 7. I have an intermediate-grade disease. Did I make a mistake? Your reaction to that is typical of many men. You know, there are major uh, organizations that don't recommend screening in men over the age. Some people use 75, some people use 70, some people use 65. If your PSA is not elevated by a certain age, I don't happen to agree with that philosophy. I think that... Um, it's okay to screen for prostate cancer. It's even okay to diagnose prostate cancer and then decide whether the prostate cancer needs appropriate. I wish that I could say that my decision was really based upon logic and uh, information, but I just didn't want to go through the anxiety and the biopsies that I've seen so many of my friends go through before they either did have prostate cancer or it was eliminated as a diagnosis. But now I say I didn't make a mistake that men need to monitor their PSA and respond to whatever number they get in the appropriate fashion. Otherwise, it can lead to unnecessary disasters. Fine. So what about the old adage that if you don't have symptoms, you don't have prostate cancer? We used to think that all the time. Most cancers don't cause symptoms until they're advanced. 75% of men that are diagnosed with prostate cancer have no symptoms. Most men who have urinary symptoms don't have prostate cancer. African-Americans have so much more aggressive prostate cancer. Is it a different disease in African-Americans? No, I mean, you know, so this is, this is similar to the problem we're having now with um, the coronavirus, right? The black populations are dying at a higher rate from coronavirus. Uh, does that mean that the biology is different? You know, so fundamentally the answer is no. If an African-American man and a white man are both have the same PSA, the same grade of tumor, the same number of positive biopsies, and they get the same quality of treatment, there's absolutely no good evidence that there's a difference in outcome. So African-American men do as well the problem is that, number one, African-Americans tend to get poor quality care. That is, there are studies that show that 
you know, if uh, African if that an African American man is more likely to be operated on at a hospital that doesn't have the experts, they're more likely to be operated on by a resident. They're less likely to be managed by experts. But if you look at the the best data to answer the question of whether there's a biologic difference is the data from randomized trials where people come in, there's certain eligibility criteria to enroll in the study, and the staging and the treatment and the follow-up are standardized. And in those studies, there's like at least 13 of those studies that I reviewed. And of the 13 studies, one study said the prostate cancer was more aggressive in African-American men And three studies said that African-American men actually did better. And eight of the studies said that, that something like eight of the studies said there was no difference in outcome. So the preponderance of evidence based on the highest level data that we have don't show a fundamental biologic difference. So for me, the key question is, why is prostate cancer more common in African-American men? You cannot dispute the fact that the mortality, the death rates are higher in African-American men than whites. And the reason the death rates are higher is because if you have a disease more commonly in your population and have equal outcomes, you're still going to have more deaths because the disease is more common. You know, I had heard that prostate cancer was a disease of older men, but I've known a lot of younger men who've had prostate cancer. Well... Our definition for older men has changed over the years as we've gotten older. You know, the median age is 66. For the young guys, that seems like an old age, 66. I mean, people frequently will retire at 65. So, But it's a bell-shaped distribution. And African-American men tend to get prostate cancer about five years earlier than, than whites. So whether... 65 or 66 is older or not is a, is, a, is a matter of opinion and a matter of perspective. I have patients that are 70 years old that are still running marathons, and I have patients that are 50 years old that are in terrible shape. So I think that rather than focusing so much on age as a number, I think you really need to look at the physiologic age. One of the misconceptions that I had was that if you didn't have a family history of prostate cancer, you're less likely to have it. It does run in families, but most people that get prostate cancer don't have a family history. That's true of all the cancers. All cancers tend to run in families. Of a black man developing prostate cancer is about almost is like twice as much as for white men developing prostate cancer. But the risk is still low. There are a lot of misconceptions about morbidity and mortality with prostate cancer. Some people believe it's so slow growing that you don't need to do anything about it. Some people believe it's a death sentence. We frequently confuse people because we act like it's one disease. But really, from the standpoint of people that treat patients with prostate cancer, we usually divide patients up into three general categories. Low-risk prostate cancer, intermediate-risk prostate cancer, and high-risk prostate cancer. The patients that have low-risk prostate cancer, if they're older, most times we recommend no treatment because they're slow-growing, They're not likely to spread, and the side effects of treatment are not worth the treatment. But the men who tend to die of prostate cancer, and we, you know, something like 40,000 men die a year of prostate cancer, so there's a a significant number of men dying 
they present typically with intermediate risk or high-risk disease. And, and most of the deaths are due to high-risk prostate cancer. But high-risk prostate cancer only represents somewhere between 10 and 20%, depending upon how you define it, what age group, what population. So let's just say 15%. So there's a fair number of patients with intermediate risk disease and a fair number of patients with low-risk disease. So you need to figure, so if, you're present, if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer, you need to find out whether you have low-risk disease, intermediate-risk disease, or high-risk disease. In men who have high-risk disease, treatment is usually indicated. If you have a lot of medical problems, if you're on dialysis and you have bad diabetes and you've had multiple strokes and, you, and you're you know, 85 years old and your doctors don't think you're going to live five years, then maybe not. But in most cases, even men over the age of 75, if they have high-risk disease, they benefit from treatment. So there are some of my questions answered about the myth of prostate cancer. So now I have all my studies. I have a biopsy that shows that I have prostate cancer. It's intermediate grade. and not spread outside the capsule. But no discussion of prostate cancer treatment would be complete without at least discussing the concept of surgery and taking out the prostate. Many of my friends have opted for that solution. So I talked to my urologist, Dr. Duad Langford, and asked him, when does he decide that surgery is a viable option? To, so for some time now, robotic surgery with increased magnification has become essentially the most common way that we remove the prostate now. That's a revolutionary change in the way that we treat prostate cancer. There is increased magnification of the areas and there is minimally invasive approach, which decreases convalescence. It decreases the amount of time people are in the hospital. And so we went from people maybe staying in the hospital one to two days, two to three days, to less one day or less. Um, in some places, they're even sending people home the same day after they have their prostate removed. So that's been a, a major change in uh, this procedure. Second, We've changed our focus towards quality of life. And so we look at the quality of life factors very seriously before and after surgery. We look at urinary continence and we look at sexual potency very, very seriously. And there's an effort to preserve sexual potency in urinary continence um, after surgery. And we have a number of different methods as well as further procedures that we can do if there is a, a hit in the quality of life after surgery. So I think that those things have, have really changed over. We're leaps and bounds above where we were 20 years ago. And there's been many studies that compare radical prostatectomy in the robotic or minimally invasive approach versus the open approach, um, and they've been shown to be equivalent. However, over time, over the last 20 years, we've seen more and more improvement in these quality of life factors. Percentage of incontinence, I have that percentage of erectile dysfunction. But what we can say is this definitively, is that you're preoperative. Before you do surgery, your sexual function, your urinary continence, the level that it's at before surgery affects the level that it's at after, okay? And so that's very important to assess your quality of erections, your quality of your, your continence before surgery and after surgery. Many studies have been done that you do take a hit. There is a decrease in your continence and your potency after surgery, directly after surgery. It, it, there, there's a hit. But then it starts to improve, and it improves. And, and essentially six months to a year after your surgery, 
you get to a steady state and you, you get to where you're going to be. And so when we, repair, when we compare radiation, they're essentially equivalent in these issues. Uh, usually you start off with good sexual function and urinary function. There's not a hit. There's not that initial hit that you take in surgery with radiation, but then it declines over time versus with surgery, you take an initial hit during the surgery and then it improves over time. Most of the time. And, 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 and they usually get back to the sexual function that they really had, not that they said that they had before they had Correct. surgery. So now I've made my decision. Uh, I'm a little older, so surgery is not really an option for me. So now I'm thinking radiation therapy. So I asked Dr. Mac Roach, who is now my therapist, what kind of radiation do I need? If you want to paint a room, you can use a paintbrush, you can use a roller, you can use a spray. You can use a rag. You can put paint on a rag and rub it on the wall. It really depends on what you're painting. If there was damage to uh, a window seal or something or damage to a small, if you're going to paint a small area, then you're not likely to spray it on. You're going to likely to paint it on with a brush. So there's, it's similar. depends on what you're going to radiate. But you also have um, options which relate to um, the expertise of the doctor. Like some types of radiation are technically more challenging to do, to perform. So brachytherapy is a technique where you use radiation by installing radioactive seeds directly in the prostate. That's really good if the cancer is limited to the prostate for you to use brachytherapy alone. But it does require that the patient undergo anesthesia, and it does require some technical expertise on the side on the on the side of the doctor. Most radiation doctors are not trained to do those procedures, so radiation doctors tend to be more comfortable using external beam radiation. Some parts of this are marketing. You know, if you go to a BMW dealership and you say, you know, I'm thinking about buying a car. What kind of car you think I should buy? They're going to say BMW. They're not going to tell you, go get you a Toyota. You know, so so there are people, for example, with proton machines. There are people that spent $120 million putting in a proton machine. And they have promised their administrators that they will recoup the cost of that machine, which means they need to do aggressive marketing to try to convince patients that proton beam radiation is better than other forms of radiation please come and get proton beam radiation, you know, but there's no clear evidence that proton beam radiation is better than other forms of radiation. So it partly depends on the patient, that is, is the disease very limited or is the disease more extensive? It depends on the expertise of the doctor. Does the doctor know how to do brachytherapy or not? It sometimes depends on the insurance in terms of what the insurance companies will pay for. For example, some insurance companies will not pay for CyberKnife, but will pay for brachytherapy, and some will pay for both. Uh, some will pay for protons, some will not pay for protons. It's not really a scientific decision as much as they have policies about what they do or don't cover. So, uh, but at the end of the day, what's most important is not necessarily what is done, but how it's done. So if a person is going to have surgery, if it's done by an expert, then the chances that the patient will become incontinent, 
means they'll be leaking urine. That is going to be lower if they have an expert do it. With radiation, if they go to a place that has a lot of experience doing brachytherapy, the brachytherapy is, le- is more likely to be done well because you get an experience doing the procedures. Um, so it, it, it depends on, you know, how many cases come through there. Um, if you're at a center of excellence that sees a lot of a certain thing, then you have you have a lot of experience uh, doing that. So I I do recommend that, um, you know, there are the, the National Cancer Institute is the place that funds most of the cancer research in the world. And they have institutions which have been identified they give categories of comprehensive cancer centers. So in order for you to be an NCI, National Cancer Institute, designated comprehensive cancer center, you have to demonstrate a certain level of quality. And, and, they, and, and we write guidelines. This is how people for this disease, for this stage should be treated, and this is how people for this stage should be treated, and this is how. So there are guidelines about which treatments are recommended based by consensus from experts from uh, the uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Now, for example, so I would tend to stray away from uh, treatments that are not supported by expert opinion um, because, uh, you know, there's less information to support it. There's usually a compelling reason that things are included in the guidelines and a compelling reason why other things are excluded from the guidelines. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to go behind the scenes, like we promised, when we put together Black Doctors Speak. Whenever you have a surgical procedure, you participate in who does that surgery. Or whenever you go to a specialist, you participate in who that specialist is. You check them out. Check out their reputation. Check out and see how much experience they've had with the problem that you have. Check out what other people say about them. Uh, don't always let your primary care doctor send you to one of his friends. Not that that's illegal, that it's unnecessarily a bad thing. But too often you don't get the best person to get the best person available uh, in the area. And I would recommend for you and your family that you try to insist to get the best person available. Well, that's certainly one of the factors that I consider that the doctor would go to. In other words, you know, if I need a lawyer, I call a lawyer and say, this is the kind of case I have. This is real estate or this is criminal. This is whatever. I don't have to be criminal, but whatever. You get the idea. The point is that if you, if, if, if I was trying to find somebody to operate on my mother, and, it, and this actually happened. I had, I had my mother need to have surgery. I call a, a, a neurosurgical procedure. I called a neurosurgeon who I trusted and said, who do you recommend? You know, the number of procedures is a factor, but sometimes the number of procedures has more to do with the referral pattern uh, and marketing. It, it does, I mean, experience is important, but it doesn't always give you all the information you need. It doesn't always tell you about quality. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, you might go, be a golfer, right? Uh, people that golf a lot tend to be better than people that don't golf a lot, but not always. Some people have been a bad golfer their whole life, and they still can't golf. You know, they they never been good at it. You know, so 
So, so certainly the, the, the number of cases that a person does is going to be a factor. Usually, you're, I agree with you, usually if a person does a lot of those procedures, if they screwed it up too many times, people wouldn't come to them. But, 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 but sometimes people have incredible bedside manners. I have known people who were in private practices in certain parts of the United States that had very large experiences doing procedures. They weren't necessarily good at it, but they had a good network of referring physicians and they had great bedside manner and people looked upon them as being experts. Um, now, for me, as an academic, I'm a university professor, I'm a little bit biased. I think that one of the manifestations of an expert is that people publish. Most, most doctors read a textbook, or a, a lot of doctors, when they're in medical school and they do their residency, they learn whatever they're going to learn, and then when they graduate and they go into practice, they don't read very much, they don't keep up very much, they go to some meetings and they listen to what the experts say. So when I made my decision to go with uh, radiation, most of my friends' first instinct was, get it out, get it out, get it out, and let it be gone. What do you say to that? So that's a very common first reaction. So it turns out that most people think that if you take the prostate out, it's gone, and you're cured, okay? But about 25% of the patients that I give radiation to for prostate cancer had their prostate removed first. And I've actually had patients come to my office after they had their prostate removed. Their urologist sent them to me for radiation and didn't tell them why they were sending them. And the patient would show up to me and be surprised. I don't know why I'm here. And I'm saying, well, you see, your PSA is going up after the operation, and your PSA is supposed to be undetectable after the operation, so you need radiation. And they go, well, how can I have a PSA if I don't have a prostate? Well, because disease can grow back generally in the area or near the area where the prostate used to be. Now, the, uh, so patients are frequently thinking that if you have the surgery, it's going to have a high cure rate. Radiation has been used to treat prostate cancer for more than 100 years. Most people don't know it was one of the earliest cancers treated with radiation, and it has been very effective, and the, the improvements in radiation are more dramatic than, than the improvements with surgery. So when the surgeons went from the old-fashioned open prostatectomy to a robotic prostatectomy, what they learned to do is to use a uh, is to make a smaller hole and take a scope and look in there and perform the operation using the robot but they're still cutting the same thing and it's still um and it's not the results are not better that is the cure rate is not better um and the the recovery may be slightly faster because the hole is smaller so what are you seeing in your journal that excites you about the future of the management of the patient with prostate cancer? Well, there are um, more studies which are being done looking at trying to determine who is going to get prostate cancer. And there may be ways to prevent prostate cancer with, with, with drugs, with treatment, with diet. Um, some of the drugs have gotten better, the drugs, 
that have been identified in certain that, that can be applied to certain types of patients that have certain types of prostate cancer that, uh, that are improving the results. And there are many more drugs. I think that the imaging uh, progress will continue. You know, there's only when a few years ago there was there was no place in the U.S. that you could get a PSMA PET scan. PSMA stands for prostate specific membrane antigen. PET a PET is a positron emission tomography. These are imaging tests that can pick up small amounts of cancer. Ten years ago, you couldn't get that in the U.S. One final question. What do you think we as black doctors need to do to get more African-American men to be screened for prostate cancer and have available for them the best possible treatments out there? I would say, as Brother Malcolm once said, don't be bamboozled or hoodwinked into thinking that you shouldn't be getting no, no, screened. You forgot. Flim-flammed. Flim-flammed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't let them people tell you don't get screened. If you're yeah. otherwise healthy, you need to be screened, period. And if they right. if they want to argue with you, tell them to come talk to me. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank Dr. Dewan Langford and Dr. Mac Roach for spending so much time with us and for being so candid about the management of prostate cancer. As for me, I've had my radiation treatments in the form of the cyber knife. I'm feeling pretty good, and I'm anxiously awaiting my next doctor's evaluation to see how effective it was. But I don't think you're going to hear this kind of candid conversation among doctors, black doctors, except on Black Doctors Speak. Welcome back, everybody. We want to thank Dr. Lenore for giving us that inside look. Of course, we wish him well, and we are hoping for a very, very speedy recovery. It is not often that we are able to really get that type of insight from the minds of doctors as well as the patient in this instance. And so we do thank him for that. We also want to thank our listeners, as I said earlier, who have been with us from the beginning and those who continue to join us every day. It is our honor and our privilege to bring this information to you, and we look forward to being your trusted go-to source for years to come. The success we've seen so far is more than we could have ever imagined, and we owe it all to you. We ask that you please share this out with your friends and family. Spread the word. Let's get more people on board. Let's get more people educated. We're trying to really make a difference in the world. Remember, Black Doctors Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation on social media at Black Doctors Speak, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.